Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. The scope and severity of extreme weather events seems to be increasing exponentially these days, with the devastating impacts of climate change and global warming never far from our minds. Yet for all the attention this existential threat to our planet rightfully receives, the myriad causes of it don't always get the focus that they warrant. For instance, while the well-known use of fossil fuels for energy produces more than half of global greenhouse gas emissions, another less well-known source is responsible for a sizable portion of the problem. That is the materials traditionally used to make all manner of both consumer and commercial goods and products in our world, which today account for close to half of emissions. On this episode, we talk to John Bissell and Rich Riley, co-CEOs of Origin Materials, a more than decade-old startup that is on a mission to solve this urgent challenge. Origin took a major step forward in its scale-up journey earlier this summer when it went public via SPAC merger. With demand across industries growing for its sustainable, carbon-negative materials technology platform, the company is entering rapid growth mode. John Bissell co-founded Origin Materials in November 2008 and has served as its chief executive officer and a member of its board of directors since inception. Bissell has extensive experience in R&D, engineering, and business development in the chemical industry. Rich Riley has served as co-chief executive officer and as a member of the board of directors of Origin since October 2020. Riley has been an investor and an advisor to Origin since 2010. John Rich, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Let's start with this overarching question. What do you guys view as the mission of Origin Materials? The mission is to take the materials that make up all of the physical stuff that humanity uses to exist in the world, to take all of that into a sustainable future. The physical goods of our species are so ubiquitous that we forget about them sometimes. We think about energy, we think about all the other stuff that we do, but this stuff that makes it up is so important and constitutes so much of the impact that we have in the world. And if we don't do a better job making that stuff more efficiently and with a lower carbon footprint and with sustainable resources, we're just not going to get there. Um, and that's really the mission of the organization to make materials, physical goods, more sustainable. And that mission and the focus of your company, how do you view that playing a bigger role in society as as companies around the world are committing to achieving net zero climate impact in the coming years and decades? We've seen an enormous uh, awareness globally with governments, companies, individuals, all realizing that climate change is real. We've got to reduce our uh, CO2 emissions. We've got to transition to sustainable um, practices. And that's really the role we play is to help companies achieve their net zero and sustainability goals, that half of their emissions footprint comes from power and transportation, which are what get a lot of the press and a lot of investment and a lot of awareness. There's the other half that comes from the products that are made that creates fully half of the emissions footprint. And that's where we help to reduce the carbon footprint of those materials and products. And do you see in some sense, part of the mission is to give more visibility to this critical component that doesn't get enough attention? Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of people don't realize there are actually are alternatives to petroleum-based materials. We're driving awareness and helping people understand that there's a trillion dollars worth of 
products that are made each year that need to make what we call a once in a planet transition away from fossil-based feedstocks to sustainable ones. John, let's talk briefly about uh, the origins of the company. Um, tell us about the journey from a piece of technology at UC Davis to your successful SPAC transaction in present day. I think a lot of that journey is characterized by, Mark Andreessen I think calls it the, the idea maze. Um, and the idea maze for materials hasn't really been navigated um, from the ground up in a long time. And this isn't precisely true, but I think of the last major chemical startup as Dow Chemical. The world in the early 1900s was obviously very different than the one that we're living in right now. A lot of the materials companies were built in a totally different ambient environment. And a lot of the same principles apply now, but in a different ambient structure of talent and technology and geopolitics and drivers. So nobody cared about, of course, CO2 footprint um, or climate change in 1906, uh, but people do a lot now. As we've discovered in the tech industry, it's really difficult to take an old legacy company and adapt it to a new environment. It's a lot easier, actually, to build a new one from scratch in that new existing environment. And so a lot of what we've been doing is figuring out what are the logical conclusions to draw um, when you're building a company that has the technology that we do to reduce the, the CO2 footprint dramatically of the materials that are being produced. How do you get to the right scale to have an impact from the starting point of, uh, as you said, a technology that was pulled out of a university um, instead of doing it in-house at a really, really large chemical company? Rich, you've been an entrepreneur in multiple places. What in particular inspired you to take on this challenge at Origin? My relationship with Origin started um, over 10 years ago when I was introduced to John and realized his incredible entrepreneurial passion and mastery of how chemistry could change the world. And so I became an investor and an advisor and invested more along the way. And for a lot of that time period, the company really was focused on the technology and there wasn't a lot of value for someone like myself to add other than telling Johnny's doing a great job. And over the last year, as it became clear that the technology was proven, that the customer demand was uh, exceptionally strong and that the customer needs to have these materials faster than previously planned, uh, which meant we needed to go out and raise a lot of money and scale up the company quickly and really connect those two dots between proven technology and enormous customer demand. There was a a great fit for me to join John to really enable John to focus on what he's best in world at, which is advancing this technology and have someone like myself come in and help take a lot of other things off his plate in terms of scaling, fundraising, administrative stuff, uh, commercial uh, relationships, and some of the strategic stuff. For me as an entrepreneur, I've always been attracted to disruptive world-class technologies that have the potential to do a lot of amazing things and then to work to commercialize those and help them scale. Speaking of pivotal moments in the company's journey thus far, what do you anticipate will or might change in the organization following the SPAC and this new structure going forward? There's been a lot that we've seen already starting to happen. One is really tightly linked to what um, Rich was just talking about, which is this scale difference. Our internal logic until relatively recently was how do you do this um, in careful uh, measured, cautious, 
I would say overly conservative, frankly, steps because we were proving all of the different components as efficiently as we possibly could. What's changed about that really is the environment. As Rick said, there's just an enormous amount of demand. There's probably uh, its own podcast discussion someday on the relationship between existential risk to human society and um, COVID and how the pandemic made human beings realize that maybe there was more risk in the world than they realized. That has been reflected in the way that the world is approaching um, climate change. We're seeing companies finally make decisions, just a tidal wave of infrastructural decisions around the way that they consume goods and energy and, uh, and materials. That scale change has caused us, obviously, to change in the way that we operate. We have access now through this IPO process, respect process, to more capital than we had before. Um, and the orientation is much more towards executing quickly and effectively. While efficiency is always important, the most important thing is getting it done on time at the right quality and scale for our customers and for the world, frankly. Um, and I think that's a dramatic change that we've seen from this last 18 to 24 months. Looking forward, Rich, what do you see as the principal operational challenges that Origin will or might face over the course of this scale-up journey that is entering quite a different phase right now? To tie it to your last question, a pivotal moment was on Friday when we had the experience of opening the NASDAQ and raising hundreds of millions of dollars and really taking the company to the next level of financing, stability, and reality, uh, which is important when you're trying to attract talent. We're on a materially different foundation than we were even a week ago. In terms of going forward, it's attracting that key talent, continuing to bring on those key partners, whether they be customers or engineering firms that are going to build these plants for us or other parts of our supply chain. And so it really is execution. But we're fortunate that these tailwinds that we've been talking about, whether it's customers being pressured to find solutions and purchase the kind of things that we're selling, financial institutions trying to find ways to lend into companies like ours, talent looking to move over to the future of materials and be part of transitioning the world. The challenge for us will be to execute and stay focused and deliver. How do you work and how do you approach working with established players, plastics players? We're very confident in the exceptionally proprietary nature of, of our technology and what we do. And that really lets us be pretty open and explain how we do what we do and really view every other chemical company as a potential partner and not a competitor, uh, which is great. So we get excited to meet with chemical companies. We've partnered with several of them. And this is where we're a, a platform company. These intermediates that we make can go on to make an enormous range of end materials. In fact, we think it's over a trillion dollars. And for a lot of those, we want to partner with someone else to get to that end application. An example is we partner with Solvay, which is a leading European chemical company, to build on top of our intermediate products apply their technology, apply their go-to-market, apply their relationships in the automotive sector to where our materials end up inside the engine in a very high-end automotive component that's very high value to our customers. And we love partnerships like that. It sounds like you don't have to deal much with it now, but has there been any point earlier where you had to overcome any misunderstanding or caution from established players who didn't perhaps initially know what to think or to accept you as a partner in the space? Harkening back to one of my earlier comments, the idea that there haven't been a lot of 
chemicals and materials startups that have successfully made it to scale over time means that there isn't a muscle for a lot of these organizations that's the startup muscle. Their muscle is the other Fortune 100 company muscle. That's the way they understand how to interact. That manifests differently depending on whether you're talking about a customer or another chemical company. I think that's actually been one of the things that has influenced our organizational development in a lot of ways is being able to engage productively with a lot of these larger, uh, more mature companies. I don't know if I'd say fully on their own terms, but closer to on their own terms. And misunderstandings is probably not the right term. I would say it's almost like you have to learn how to speak the same language. As an organization, we're, we're focused on speed and execution and bringing a new thing into the world. And a lot of these companies have been around quite productively for, in some cases, centuries. Aside from just scale, the mindset that comes from an organization that is centuries old versus an organization that until recently wasn't even a decade old, it's very different. And on top of that, chemical companies are some of the most capable companies on earth. They have deep expertise in an enormous number of areas, and they have sophisticated ways that they bring that expertise together. And so for us to be able to engage in all of those different areas meant that we had to have a pretty sharp game before we could have really useful conversations. We figured that out, but it's a meaningful hurdle to play in the pro league <laughs> with these kinds of companies. Much of what we think of as modern business and the modern economy was built, frankly, by chemical companies or petrochemical companies. They're almost the incarnation of the global economy of the last 50 years, 100 years um, in all of the different areas. And so that's something that um, I really enjoy, but it took some real skill and development and time to figure out how to engage with companies like that. Rich, speaking of complex relationships, I'm wondering how you navigate the relationships involved in multiple generations of investors, leaders, partners, even pivots as you continue to scale. Well, we've just gone through a big transition, which will continue on the shareholder front, although our existing shareholders didn't sell in the transaction, and I, I hope we'll be shareholders for a long time. We have a new board now, which we're really excited to work with. Former CEOs, chief sustainability officers, um, people with a wide variety of, of experiences that we think can be really helpful in helping us scale and think through uh, important strategic decisions. On the partnership side, we've more than doubled our orders during this SPAC process over the last um, several months and have gone into new industries, including apparel and construction and automotive, where we previously had only CPG partners. We're continuing to add new companies in new industries. And to what John was saying, whether it's those companies or chemical companies, um, they're all changing really quickly too. We also have to tell ourselves that just because a certain company a few years ago may not have thought this was a priority. That doesn't mean they don't think it's a priority now. There's a new story every week or every day around the world just racing to try to solve this problem. We've got to keep evolving with our team, with our investors, with our customers. That's one of the great things about having been grown up as a startup. We pride ourselves on our adaptability and ability to evolve with the world around us. John, the environment for your technology wasn't always as receptive as you're talking about how it is now. Uh, you've worked for more than a decade on this business with many significant hurdles. I'm wondering how you persisted with your goal and your vision. As you say, the environment has not been consistent for climate change and climate technologies, however you want to look at it, over the last um, decade. I think there are a couple components common to any entrepreneur, and um, some of them are perhaps a little bit specific to this space. But 
for me, the first really important thing was, um, is, uh, really believing in what we're doing and that what we're doing matters. So I live in California. We have, especially in the last few years, as an example, we have incredible wildfires. You can't go outside uh, because the smoke, it's pretty intense. I'd say every couple of years we have that. It's a very physical manifestation of climate change. One of the things that comes to mind, I have a particular memory around this, is thinking through having to tell someday my son or my grandkids or whomever it is that, it, um, that I care about in the future and sit across the table from them and look around at all of the devastation, frankly, that we pretty much know is going to be wreaked by climate change if we don't do something about it now. The idea that I would look around at that and say, you know, I don't know, it just got really hard, so I stopped trying to fix it. Like, I can't imagine having to have that conversation. There is this unbelievable problem. It's almost the problem of our generation. And I have a real capability, right, and, and my team. We have a real ability to try to stop this or at the very least significantly mitigate it. And there's very, very little in the world that is not worth sacrificing in order to try to attempt that. I think there's another part that's important to realize too, which is perhaps more local and more tactical, um, which is that whenever you're in a situation, the people around you matter a lot. You have made a commitment to them. And I think those are the two strong drivers, at least for me, to push through just about anything that's difficult in this business. Rich, historically conventional wisdom has been uh, that investors like startups with capital-like business models. But you guys obviously have to build large factories, and um, that's clearly a huge focus going forward. What would you say to other entrepreneurs in capital-intensive startups who might face investor caution or skepticism about capital-intensive business? Some problems require solutions that require a lot of capital, and this is one of them. I would say not to be discouraged by it, but to be realistic about it. I think it affects how you choose your investors and making sure you have investors who recognize the capital that's going to be required and what the development of the company is likely to look like. But it's all that more satisfying to uh, have gotten there with the capital intensity. And then once you're there, it creates quite an advantage because it's harder which makes the rewards potentially that much better. And so in our case, we will use a lot of capital. We think we'll achieve incredibly high rates of return on that capital. In a lot of ways, the more capital, the better and the more returns. Well, I've started several software companies that required no capital. A lot of the change we wanna see in the world and problems we wanna solve require capital intensive solutions. And it'd be a shame if all of our talent and venture dollars and risk capital flowed only to capital light opportunities and none to capital intensive ones. As people think more about the really huge problems we face, do you have a sense if that conventional wisdom about investors and capital-like business models is shifting at all? If you look at some of the electrical vehicle and battery technologies, there's been enough examples of capital-intensive businesses that have gained a lot of investor dollars and attractive valuations that I think it has changed. We're also seeing funds now explicitly created to go after the hard parts of decarbonization, which frequently is requiring a lot of capital and a lot of time to develop it. But I would encourage anyone who's going into it to choose your investors carefully and choose people who have been through that process themselves and are heads up on what that journey is likely to look like, because it is different than some of the capital light um, in terms of development time and obviously the need to continue raising larger and larger amounts of capital. I'm interested to know, as the company 
has started to scale and enter a really new transformational phase. Are there any people who were not willing or able to make the jump? And how did you handle this? There are a couple different things sort of baked into your question. One is, do people scale in the sense that do they have the skills necessary to continue to operate in a, in a leadership role at the next scale of the company, right? Or next developmental phase of the company. There's a second um, part of that, which is if they don't have that skill set that's required for the next level of development uh, and or operational scale of the company, do they stay or do they go away? For us, generally people's skill sets are still extraordinarily relevant, whether they take on the next level of leaders. I mean, leading a 10-person team is very different from leading a 50-person team and leading a 200-person team. The core skill sets, we tend to have, I'll say technical, but it's not necessarily just technical, even in the business areas or sales marketing or whatever operations. We have people who are deep in their area of expertise in addition to having leadership and managerial capabilities. And so their technical depth or their operational depth continues to be relevant even as the company gets larger. So I can't think of a time where somebody was no longer relevant to the company. They stay, they may not continue on as a member of the senior leadership team because that's just not where their skill set lies. It lies in some other spot in the organization. So that happens. I'm not sure that this is discussed in the entrepreneurial world as often as it probably happens, which is that startups are incredibly intense. With a long development cycle like this, there are people who just get tired. People are constitutionally different <laughs> and not everybody is constitutionally set up for several decades of very intense development. We've had people who either take on more of an individual contributor role or step out of the company as a result of, frankly, just the fact that it's a long haul and there need to be baton passes just from an energetic perspective as well. And maybe summing it all up, we've had unbelievably high retention through all of this stuff. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I think our voluntary churn rate is less than 2% or something like that over the last 10 years. But generally speaking, people are here and they're here to stay and they want to contribute and they believe so much in the mission that they're going to break themselves. Pulling the reins is almost sometimes more important since they last the race. You talked a bit about the change in the environment over the past 12 to 18 months, the rapid acceleration of what the company is going through. I can imagine that could be challenging for folks who have been used to one pace for a certain amount of time. Honestly, I think our team generally has been waiting for this kind of running room, let's call it. I think it comes from being mission focused. If you're mission focused, you want to achieve the objective and you want to achieve it as quickly as you possibly can. It feels a lot better and a lot more natural to just go really fast. Actually, we were in a regime that was maybe not quite as natural for our team. A good problem to have when you have to rev up for an accelerating business environment. Both of you have been part of this journey for the last decade. Are there parts that have been easier than you imagined or more difficult than you imagined? I mean, lots of things in both directions. Anything notable? I mean, I've had folks who say nothing easier, but I can come up with a long list of things that were more difficult. So. I think that a lot was harder, a lot. Let me just get that straight out. Um, <laughs> but there's something about the gestalt of the journey that maybe easier isn't the right way, but more possible than I expected, honestly, is maybe the right way to frame it. I think that in aggregate, I think I had never really thought, maybe back in 2008, 2009, right? When we were really starting the company up, I never really thought 
concretely about in 10 years, exactly what is it going to look like when we get there? And, and I think I explicitly didn't think about that too much. It was more about what it needs to be than trying to predict what it is going to be, if that makes sense. Um, and focusing on the need and then just driving towards it. Maybe what I would add is the, um, where I think we've been regularly pleasantly surprised is on the development of the technology. And so I think we got fortunate or some good judgment, but we went down the right path. And even when times were hard and fundraising was more challenging than it should have been, I felt like there was always good news on the technology development side. I would say that one of the hardest things is 10 years ago, people weren't talking about decarbonization. Climate change wasn't really a word. When it takes 10 years to develop a, a core process like this, you've got to unfortunately start before the world knows it needs this solution. And as a result, the world's not necessarily as ready to fund this kind of solution. It's harder to attract talent, to take the risk, to work on this kind of thing. So I think that was the challenging part of the journey, but it's, I think, made the company quite, quite scrappy and quite nimble. You talk about the technology development. Is there any advice either of you would give to early stage entrepreneurs looking to go down a similar path in terms of trying to commercialize a novel technology at scale? I think there's a delicate balance between understanding what's possible and understanding what your vision is. Being an engineer, I think of it as of a thermodynamic result. What's possible thermodynamically? There's no perpetual motion machine. I didn't create mass somewhere, right? There's not a black box where magic is happening in what I'm trying to do. So as long as I don't have that, then you can go after something pretty aggressive. But I think sometimes people forget that you have to make sure there's not a black box with magic happening. Being grounded in that is really important so that you're not chasing unicorns. On the other side, how can you be grounded, but also open-minded enough and ambitious enough that you can do something that matters, that's not just incremental? I would just add two thoughts. Um, one is to really have a North Star. So from the time John started, he wanted to make sure he was cost competitive with the fossil-based alternatives and not assume green premiums or that there was going to be some other form of magic in terms of the world can overpay for these things. And the other is to not take shortcuts. A great thing that John and the team did was develop a core chemical platform and not go for some quick win with some niche of application that might've been popular at that moment or with that customer or whatever. And I'm sure it was a more challenging journey because of that, but that's why we are where we are today. What kind of innovations, uh, technical or otherwise, can you guys foresee in this space as we continue to plot our way towards the net zero future? I think there are a couple things that are at play. One is, I think that we're going to see um, convergence in the materials that we use uh, as a species. We now care a lot about end of life for the material. And end of life is greatly advantaged by having a smaller number of materials um, and by having products which can be decomposed or deconstructed down into a couple different fundamental materials so that they can be recycled or dealt with in the most appropriate way. So that's going to drive us towards materials like PET and like glass, aluminum, steel, um, and trying to use uh, just those fundamental components uh, as much as we possibly can. And then there's going to be other for critical functional advantages, right? There's going to be other stuff that layers on top. I think as a species over the, over the decades, we're going to see this drive towards a smaller 
number of materials, all of which are operating at larger scales because those materials meet some of the really critical constraints. They're lower carbon. This is why we think by bringing our carbon negative PET to the world, you're taking something that is already non-toxic, doesn't have a lot of the toxicity issues that you see with like BPA or phthalates, things like that. It's extraordinarily recyclable. It performs well. Um, and then we're making it carbon negative. And I think we're going to see that happen also with cement and glass and aluminum and probably um, high-dense polyethylene and a couple other materials. But it's going to be like a handful of these instead of right now, there are hundreds of different materials that you use on a regular basis. And so I think that's going to be one of the major drivers of change. Ironically, I think we're going to see more distribution of production. We have extremely centralized production right now that's driven by the economics of oil and fossil materials. So the Gawar oil field right in Saudi Arabia, it's such an enormous scale of supply that you automatically start to consolidate all of the supply chain and value chain downstream. I think that when we're looking at all of these other technologies, including ours, that are carbon negative or low carbon, and we start engineering for that, we're going to see much more distribution in production, which is also good for the resiliency of the supply chain. So we saw through COVID that there's a bunch of... Um, damage to the supply chains because they were very concentrated in very specific ways and they relied on really complicated networks of distribution and production. And I think that what we're going to see is something that's much more robust over time. Well, that long-term perspective seems as good a moment as any to wrap things up. I want to thank John Bissell and Rich Riley of Origin Materials for taking the time out to have a really thoughtful conversation today. I also want to thank our great McKinsey on Startups production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Ramtree, Myron Shergan, and Katie Zamorowski. And finally, thank you as always to our listeners. We hope you'll return for future episodes of McKinsey on Startups. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.